Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. I'm super excited that eToro is sponsoring Untold Stories because the CEO of eToro has been tweeting about Bitcoin since 2012. That's true OG. Now, eToro has become one of the largest crypto companies in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low and transparent fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your crypto portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world, myself included, to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account today at eToro.com. Links are in the show notes. And build your crypto portfolio the smart way. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of Crypto Mining. Scott's a broker of ASIC mining gear and helps people buy and sell their miners. He created a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart that you can find at CryptoMining.Tools. It's the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI. That includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you a more realistic profit projections. So check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. Links are in the show notes. Untold Stories is powered by Blockworks Group, the only event and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. We have a very special guest today, Mr. Rajiv Chandrasekhar. Did I pronounce that right? That's perfect. Excellent. I worked hard this morning, by the way. I always want to make sure that I'm pronouncing everything correctly. Super. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I want to give our listeners a very brief um, overview of who you are. Um, You're an internet, you're an Indian politician and entrepreneur. You're a member of parliament in the upper house, and you're a member of the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is the the party in power of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Um, You're also, not only you're a member of parliament, but you're one of the most famous uh, entrepreneurs of, of in India. Um, you're on uh, various committees like the Committee of Finance, the Standing Committee of Defense that I write here, and you're the founder of chairman and chairman of Jupiter Capital Limited um, that owns a lot of media companies in India. It's safe to say that you know a little bit about the internet and how it works. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think, uh, I, you know, I, I started off as a tech entrepreneur and I came back to India from the Silicon Valley where I had a stint with Intel. And I built one of the earliest cellular companies, uh, cellular mobile companies in the country. So I kind of know what it is to build something out in unconnected uh, markets and to, you know, sort of deliver connectivity to people who are sort of uh, lacking it. You you said a quote earlier before we started recording. Can, can you repeat that? Yeah, you know, I, I like saying this. I said, you know, in 2014, when uh, Prime Minister Modi first uh, assumed office uh, on the back of uh, a fairly strong mandate. 
Um, and he was uh, one of the politicians uh, that I looked up to because he was very uh, invested in the idea of technology and governance and essentially disintermediating people uh, from the conventional bureaucratic uh, framework. So I, I remember saying then that India represented a, a great story because it was one of the fastest growing uh, markets in terms of connectivity and connecting people. But at the same time, it remained one of the largest unconnected markets where India, where a large number of Indians, you know, and in 2014, it was almost 800, uh, 850 odd million Indians that remained outside of the internet and uh, just lacked the basic connectivity and the ability to come online. L- looking at, at, at the policies of, of Prime Minister Modi, and and what has been worked on over the past few years, it seems like and tell me if I'm wrong, it seems like his mandate and, and what, you know, you guys as a party, what what you're really focused on is giving people freedom, is giving people the ability to connect to each other for for information, but also to grow business wise and, and to give individuality and and more growth for 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 the people of India. And that is absolutely correct. Uh, and I just go further and say, uh, you know, if uh, from a point of view of India, we, we've been we've been a democracy for like seventy five years now, coming on to seventy five years, and uh, it, it it boggles the mind that even after seventy seventy five years of independence, uh, there is four hundred million odd Indians that still live uh, that still lived in you know poverty, and they were very. Uh, clearly outside of the uh, falling outside the government system and a lot of this was because of the conventional um, legacy architecture of how the government was structured which is you had people sitting in these offices far away from uh, population centers and they were taking policy decisions that were in a, in a lot of ways unconnected to what people were really uh, going through and uh, technology and Prime Minister Modi said this in 2013 before he became Prime Minister that he believed that a nation as large as India, as diverse as India, as, as, populate, as populated as India can only address and uh, the, the, the promise of delivering governance to each and every Indian if you use technology significantly in the process of governance. So what technology has done is essentially take government and governance to uh, the doorsteps, if you may uh, call it that, to a large population of Indians who never experienced or who had to struggle uh, to experience governance. So I think that is, in a way, delivering freedom, real freedom. Uh, while we got freedom 75 years ago from British, I think the real freedom, individuality, and the, the power of a democracy is only now beginning to get through to a lot of people uh, in large measure due to the power of the internet and the power of connectivity. How do you maintain, though, small government? Because that's that I, I've read that's that's what you, you know, you, your party and, and the prime minister have talked about is maintaining a, a small, nimble government. And so far, it's been successful. H- how do you do that in a country where the population is so large? No, so look, I, I don't think, uh, Jolly, I don't think I want to even uh, pretend that we've reached uh, the stage uh, of uh, creating a minimum government or a smaller footprint of the government just after five years. I think uh, Prime Minister Modi and his team uh, and a lot of us are trying to re-architect the concept of government. And of course, uh, if you look at the history of India, we were 
Uh, we became independent from the British. Then we flirted with about six decades of a quasi-socialist, uh, you know, statist model of governance, where big government, you know, and government was everything. It owned airlines, it owned hotels, it owned everything under the sun, including delivering subsidies and benefits to the poor. Uh, to restructure that and to, in a sense, re-architect that footprint is not something that is trivial and that will just happen overnight. I think it's a process. I think technology is going to uh, is going to play a big role in how we take these big, large bureaucratic organizations that have been sitting on silos of information, silos of knowledge, silos of data for many decades and sort of make them all interwork together for the benefit of giving faster, more responsive governance. We're not there yet, but that is clearly the vision and that is clearly the direction we are headed in. And I think we've made some uh, early steps towards that, but I think it will take another five to seven years for that whole restructuring and re-architecting, if you want to call it that, of government to complete. People think that we're in um, that, a lot of people think that the internet revolution didn't happen until the early 2000s a lot of people think that oh like the internet um cell phones the internet um wasn't really like penetrated or used in daily life until the late 90s early 2000s and to some extent that's true but realistically the the infrastructure and the groundwork for computers and and the internet as we know it today happened as early as the 80s you worked for intel in the united states from the mid 80s 1985 to the early 90s 1991 you were part of the senior design uh team that actually um designed the the pentium microprocessor which is the everyone you know has heard of the pentium processor by intel um do you do you kind of see parallels between the cryptocurrency space today and the early early i mean like early 80s of designing microprocessors and the computers and the internet Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the the early days of the internet was uh, all about, uh, us, you know, it, it was it was a it, it was not commercial in any sense. It was really about innovation. It was about, uh, you know, people from all across the country, the U.S., of course, working together to build something that was exciting. And, uh, you know, all the way to the early 90s, when I left the Silicon Valley and came back to India to start cellular. Um, the, the the internet was something on the back uh, of what we were all doing as an enabler. I mean, but it was really still not evident to a lot of us about how powerful that was going to become. I mean, I remember using that for having chats with uh, fellow microprocessor architects in the East Coast, sitting in the in the valley and talking about uh, you know pipeline microprocessors and getting a lot of design ideas by just collaborating on the internet. Uh, but the true power of the internet, in my opinion, really uh, took off um, in the early 2000s, as you said, when the commercial elements of that became very evident and obvious and a lot of capital started flowing into it and, and that triggered off the next wave of innovation. Now, in crypto, uh, I believe it's it's the same thing. I think there has been, it, it, sta- it started off as demonstration of innovation. You know, I can do this better than you and a whole bunch of people coming together. And uh, it, it is in the, it, it, in my opinion, I mean, and I'm not an expert on crypto as much as you are or so many of the other people who listen to this are, but I sense that it has been built with a sense of 
an almost utopian view of uh, creativity and innovation. Uh, and and then, of course, it's going off into different directions. And of course, now with the awareness of the net and the dangers or the benefits and the benefits, the pushback to some of this is far earlier in the development of the crypto in, in terms of the cycle rather than we faced in the internet, uh, the evolution of the internet. Um, so this is, in my opinion, it's not very different from where we were in the early 90s. Uh, but it's the challenges and the regulatory involvement and the legal, uh, uh, let's say, uh, you know, trap doors and uh, challenges that it's going to go through are far more complex at this early stage of its evolution compared to, let's say, what the Internet faced at its end. That's a very good point. I, I, I never really thought of that because a lot, you know, I thank you for bringing that point because a lot of people um, and, I, and I'm one of them. I think I feel like I draw parallels to the early internet and I draw parallels to the early crypto space. But from what I understand, what you're saying is the, the dangers, the trap doors and the, the issues that, that, that we have in the early crypto um, need to be addressed now instead of waiting rather with the internet in the early, you know, eighties and nineties, there was more time to kind of let things play out and see where they lead. Exactly. And, and and part of this is in the in the in the public policy space in the in the in the space that is let's say the anti innovators if you want to call it that which is government uh, which is the control guys uh, the, the the awareness of the uh, about the internet and things that are happening on the internet is far more evolved now than let's say they were in the early nineties or the late eighties so the regulators I'm uh, you know it's pretty clear that the FCC and the, all of those regulators in the U.S. or Europe or in, indeed India, when we started things here, were completely—I uh, mean, uh, they were absent. They, were, they weren't anywhere on the radar, and they just came into it when problems started sort of popping up uh, here and there. But in this case, in the crypto space, given there's a, uh, there's, there's almost like a perfect storm uh, is, that is that is. Uh, facing the growth and the innovation momentum of crypto, which is you have the law and order and the terrorism and the cyber security uh, concerns on one hand. And then you have the uh, pretty clearly heightened awareness about the internet not being all good and having some potential of these little uh, evil pockets uh, sort of resting within them. And therefore the regulators using that as a justification to uh, sort of snoop around or get more involved. Yeah, these two things are almost almost causing uh, uh, an inevitable over um, intrusion, if you want to call it that, or almost a uh, sort of a breaking, putting breaking effect on what would otherwise have been of you know you know faster growth, a lot more innovation that you'd see in the whole crypto space. You're right. There's a there's there are definitely two sides to it. Um... And so um, there's a huge campaign right now in India um, called India Wants Crypto. And it seems like on Twitter, it has gotten millions and millions of impressions. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the movement understands, well, I hope they would understand, the position of the government needs to protect its people and it needs to protect consumers who are unaware. And yes, there are a lot of scams and there are, you know, black markets and domestic terrorism and things like that. Um, But I guess on their side, they're saying, 
how come the government hasn't decided to talk to us to let us help you develop things you know self regulatory self self regulatory bodies um are really the the ones that are the precursor to a lot of regulations i'm sur- i'm sure there weren't a lot of regulations when you had brought ce- you know cellular technology Absolutely. to to india and you developed your own regulations and eventually the government adopted those regulations do you think that could happen in india with crypto so here's here's the thing charlie you know we in the entire cyber uh, technology space our policy framework and our regulatory architecture is really playing catch up um it's not unusual for a country uh, of like ours yes. or, i mean it's it's playing catch up everywhere but i think ours is playing catch up now uh, one of the things I, I don't know if you're aware but i was uh, the one who petitioned the supreme court amongst a few others that privacy ought to be a fundamental right for all indians and in uh, 2016 the supreme court of india ruled that uh, privacy is a fundamental right uh, of for all indians now privacy can you get the united states supreme court to say that too because <laughs> we really need that yeah but uh, in our in our case when you say fundamental right it's subject to some restrictions and those restrictions are usually defined by national security exceptions for example if the government does have a legitimate case and can prove to a court or an, uh, an appropriate body that uh, the privacy of that particular person can be breached because it affects the larger public interest uh, that that privacy right goes away or or um, sort of stands cancelled so we have that and we have obviously all of the innovation that is represented by by the entire you know uh, rapidly growing crypto space uh, we are now in the process of moving towards um, in my opinion uh, a legislative framework uh, and a legal framework that will allow innovation to happen that will allow people to collect data from consumers provided consumers consent and all of that i'm i'm mixing up crypto and privacy deliberately because from a policy framework charlie these things they go hand in hand yeah, they yes. go hand in hand yes so uh but uh we have to address the big uh, the big sort of elephant in the room which is the issue of access that the government will seek uh on these national security uh you know the, for reasons so that is where privacy and crypto and that is where we are now in the middle of a discussion of evolving what are those exceptions and how can the government's national security agencies be provided access to um uh, material that they believe are material uh, in in the larger public interest so that conversation is underway uh, and i i suspect that the the crypto guys in india will also be part of that conversation i just finished for example uh, over the last 3 weeks a detailed round table consultation with pretty much every stakeholder the large technology companies the small startups the foreign companies asking them their view about uh, this issue of data localization because there is for example there's a view that all of those companies that harvest data of indian consumers must keep that data in india and not I use agree. it in uh, in in servers across uh, in you know in whichever china or wherever and the data the movement of that data should be very effectively regulated now these are all these are all conversations that are underway today so we have on like i said we have on one hand the national security 
uh, folks, the people who really believe genuinely and passionately that uh, the country must be secure and therefore that should drive uh, public policy making and that should drive everything. And then you have on the other side, uh, the innovators. I personally believe that these should not be 180 degrees, uh, you know, differentiated in, in phase. Uh, I, I, there is no, uh, I believe strongly that these two can be on the same side, provided we work out a mutually acceptable way of accessing that data. Uh, and mutually accessible, uh, mutually acceptable in the sense, mutually acceptable and legally consistent way of accessing data in these emergencies, national security emergencies. And so that conversation ran away. I think the 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 crypto community, which is growing and India has the power to be one of the largest crypto. It already is. So I've been working um, for years, but I think India has the potential power to be the largest and most innovative um, crypto uh, industry in the world. Because, we, as you know, a lot of people are leaving the United States and are leaving Europe and going to a lot of countries in Southeast Asia. And a lot of people are moving to India as well. Um and so you you wrote back in December you wrote a um a letter to the to the finance minister and the governor of the um RBI and you wrote that there are there are already reports of a surge in domestic bitcoin trade and there are as well as a moving of black economy to the dark internet um the the surveillance and policying requirements are challenging and and then you continued on to write, I am drawing your attention to the need to be ahead of the curve on this rather than behind. So the RBI must develop the capabilities on this urgently. That was a very powerful letter that you wrote. And for all intents and purposes, very, very bullish if I was reading that. But it seemed like the RBI took the opposite approach and instead basically told all banks in the country don't work with any crypto companies at all. And it's in the, uh, there's a whole Supreme Court ruling going on right now. Why, why do you think they took that stance? And this is, uh, Charlie, you know, I am part of the system now. So, I, I, you know, I have to be uh, smart about how I say this. Uh, you see, there are two ways of addressing a problem in any, any governmental system. One is to say we will be smarter than the guys who are innovating and we will just you know, be ahead of the curve and we will engage with them uh, on a basis of almost equal domain knowledge and capability. Uh, and But that's hard work for anybody in the government to do. That's hard work for anybody in the public uh, uh, space to do, which is, you know, get up to speed and innovate as much as some of, uh, some of the smarter guys. So therefore, there is an almost instinctive response by those who sense a threat to use a hammer on the threat, which is to say, look, let's just shut down that threat by bolting it into uh, uh, you know some room and shutting the door. Um, it is not the way I would like it. I would, I would, I, I, I do, I would not want innovation to be trampled by a paranoid approach to regulation, because paranoid approach to regulation just means let's you know the safest way to handle things is just shut the door on everything and just say no to innovation and nobody will be worried about anything except in the consumer who, uh, who will suffer with uh, you know, limited choice in terms of innovation. So I think that is what the RBI did, which is to say, oh, here is a, here is a problem. Uh, somebody just flagged that uh, a lot of the black money that we were trying to address through reducing cash in the economy is going to go underground. And so instead of 
figuring out how to do this better and how to keep an eye on the black, uh, you know, dark internet and uh, keep an eye on Bitcoin movement and creating some capability within our system. Let's just say it's illegal. And so then anybody who does that will be scared to death about doing it. Um, this is not unusual. And I think uh, my own view is that at some point we will have to get to a place uh, as India and other countries around the world where we we are able to look at innovation and support innovation, but are capable of regulating innovation uh, wherever innovation has uh, creates problems in public interest. Uh, but that's, uh, having said that, it's not easy to create in the government. It is, uh, um, you know, if I was the RBI pro- or you were in the RBI, we could possibly do it. Uh, it's not easy to just get that. Done. Well, yeah, because they have a, there's a huge job they have to do because, they have to to basically go on 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 both sides um, and appease yes. innovation, but also appease. Um, I'd like to play a clip. Um, I'd like to play a clip that um, I was sent uh, this morning from um, someone who looks up to you, and he'd like to 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 meet you and try to work with you. Uh, Wayne, can we play the first clip? Hi, Charlie. Namaste, Mr. Rajiv. My name is Nishchal Shetty, and I'm the founder and CEO of Vazirx, which is a cryptocurrency exchange based out of India. My first question to you is: uh, There was a recent crypto report released by a committee set up by the government of India, which recommends a ban on crypto in India. But none of the industry experts uh, were consulted or involved in this. So, can we expect industry participation uh, to make the report? more positive and better for our uh, crypto ecosystem in India? So uh, um, my response to Nishal is, I think, you know, those of you who have a view on crypto and believe that there is sufficient room in the public policy space uh, for the policies to evolve and to be inclusive of innovation and at the same time address these national security and other concerns, they they should just reach out to me and... uh, um, you know, I have the ability to create, let us say, uh, documents with your inputs and have that presented either in parliament or into to the government. So uh, don't worry about what goes on in government. And th- that is one particular point of view. Uh, India is, a, is, is, you know, a, a fairly vibrant democracy in the sense that you can still approach people like me and evolve an alternate view and have that alternate view uh, be uh, discussed, narrated, uh, and you know, debated within government. I can do that. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'd encourage you to t- reach out to me. We'll put your Twitter handle in the show notes. But thank you, thank you for responding to that. Etoro is crypto trading made easy. It's one of the largest and smartest trading platforms in the world with extraordinarily low and transparent fees. Join myself and 11 million other traders and create an account at etoro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. As a mining equipment broker, Scott Offered wants to make sure his clients are well-informed and making data-backed business decisions. Scott created the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI for miners. It's a better way to compare the efficiency of various models of ASIC miners and to see how the price of the miner and the efficiency impacts your mining profitability. So check it out at CryptoMining.Tools and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. It seems like 
here in the United States, government is not approachable. And the people that are, you know, on the ground here, um, we don't feel like we, we have the ability to really talk to um, the ones that are really in the positions to to help draft legislation. And I think um, if we look at the, at the countries where you are able to do that, Switzerland, for example, um, a lot of countries in Europe, in, in Asia, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, the, their style of governments enable people to 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 really approach even in the UAE. Um, you're seeing the same type of things. Um, what kind of parallels do you see between between governance? What's your what What are your thoughts on on governance itself? Because you know you come from the technology space. You have a lot of views on on privacy that are really good. And now that you're in the government, like tell me what was that like your first day, and you know kind of sitting in your chair in your office and saying, "Wow, now I'm in the government." What what was that like? So Charlie, just just so, I mean, unless you are uh, seeing the future uh, that I don't see, I'm not in the government yet. I'm in parliament. So unless you uh, uh, unless you have some. <laughs> Uh, crystal ball <laughs> gazing that you're doing and you see me in the government soon. Um, no, I, I'm not in government, but I am uh, in the party that is in government and I am fairly actively uh, involved in advocating issues that I'm very passionate about with the government. Um, you know, for example, the whole issue of net neutrality, what, the reason India is so far ahead of the US uh, on the way we look at the internet is because uh you know, I got a whole bunch of people to sit around a table and uh, be very clear about how they wanted the future of the internet to be in India, and and we very strongly worked with the uh, regulator and the government, and the prime minister responded and said, "Yes, we will not distort the free and open nature of the internet just because a few telcos wanted it," uh, which is precisely what happened. Uh, which is precisely not what happened in the U.S. So we have, uh, in my opinion, in India, uh, a government that is open, uh, does not have an ideological view on these things, but has obviously a responsibility to be taking care of the safety and you know uh, security of all of the people of this country, and therefore they will always look at this issue, at uh, this issue and any other issue, uh, as as is reasonably expected for them to do so, by saying, look, what. If this is innovation, we don't have a problem with it. But when it does represent a certain problem, tell us how we can fix that or how you can fix that for us. So that conversation applies even to crypto. And I think it is instead of making this about government versus innovators, I actively encourage people to come sit with me and believe in my ability to articulate their positions and their points of view to people in government and the, the leadership of the government and hopefully persuade them to do the right thing. I will, I will help organize that and, and actually come out. Uh, you invited me once, but I, I'm definitely going to take you up on that and, and come out. I've, I've never been to India, but I have wanted to for so long. And, and here's a good reason for me to come. Uh, yes, when did you, you when did you hear about crypto for the first time and what were your original thoughts about it? Do you, do you follow uh, technology that's, that's on the cusp on the leading edge? Yeah. yeah. Look, uh, you know, that, that is in my DNA. I mean, uh, you know, I may, I may be a politician today and I, I, I deal with water problems and road problems and electricity problems and uh, corruption issues and all of that. But uh, you know, innovation and uh, people who innovate are pe people that I respect 
a lot because that is in my DNA. I I I, I really look up to people who even in today's world are out there confidently, uh, you know, creating the new Wild West, or, you know, if I can use that phrase. But so I am very plugged into technology. I can't say that I can still code the way I used to do uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. It's like riding uh, a bicycle. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I'm told, <laughs> you know, I used to do it in C and I used to write 10,000 lines of code. And now I'm told there are, you know, easier ways of doing this and the languages are much more easier. And you don't have to compile it and link it and create exec files and all of that. So anyway, uh, the point uh, is uh, that I am f- quite plugged in. Uh, the, when I f- uh, the first time I heard about crypto was really when I was looking at blockchain. And I looked at blockchain and I then, as I was reading up and understanding from people, I then moved on to crypto and uh, the whole, you know, the cryptocurrency bit. The uh, and then obviously you know you got immersed in that and was fascinated by that, uh, and then because I was in the public policy side of things when I was reading this, immediately the questions were how do you uh, how do you manage the anonymity how do you manage uh, issues in a country like India where we already have a problem with black money and a parallel economy uh, will this feed into that or will that feed into this? Uh, so ob- I approached it. Almost like a uh, you know like a marriage of a technology aficionado plus a public policy maker, and um, and that's how I got interested in it. That's very interesting that you you brought the that you brought up the underground economy. What's what's that really like? You know, a few years ago, um, I believe higher denomination bills were taken out of circulation, and that was to combat um, like corruption and illegal black market are things like that still happening and and has it been a problem for a long time yeah i think uh, you know it has been one of the biggest problems in india for several decades now which is uh, uh that this unaccounted wealth uh, i mean and, and I, I don't want to bore you but this it's uh, the whole complex it's a complex picture of very low tax compliance uh and a very few people bearing the tax burden, therefore having to pay high taxes, high rates of taxes, and a large number of people who are earning money, uh, in, you know, in buying things, buying expensive cars, essentially doing that with uh, almost tax exempt money because they, they they never disclose their incomes, and that is what was the parallel economy. That of course also fed into crime and all of that other stuff that we don't want. So there were two real rationales for the demonetization. One is to almost force the migration of the illegal untaxed income into the taxation uh, uh, taxed income bracket so that the tax net could widen and therefore the tax rates for good, honest um, salary earners moderate over time. So there was that motivation. And the other motivation was that this this uh, black economy uh, was also feeding uh, the criminal enterprises and uh, and the all of the downstream activities that go from that so that was necessary to do and it is be, it was necessary to do because for the last 70 years in india that has been the bane of politics it has been the bane of electoral politics politicians crime all of that so when you talk about crypto the natural uh, concern or paranoia would be by creating this 
are we going back or are we moving transitioning from a cash economy cash black economy to something that is even less traceable and more difficult to crack because cash is at the end of the day you can always you know go into somebody's house and find out stacks of currency notes that have been piled up there or or not uh this is a lot more sophisticated and definitely not something that a normal constable on a beat can uh, pick up on so there there is a war on cash going on around the world Absolutely. and it's like a lot of governments don't want people using cash at all do you, do you see like a world where we don't have physical cash and and i also want to say one comment about what you said before um I actually, you know, I talk to a lot of regulators uh, consistently and, and the ones that are involved in in not only regulating, but also enforcing will say that actually it's a lot easier to do crime with cash than it is with Bitcoin and with crypto. And in fact, th- they almost like it when criminals try to use cryptocurrency because they're stupid and it's easier to to, to, to track them down when they're using cryptocurrency than it is when they're using cash. No, so I, I think those are the points that have to be made. Uh, but uh, in from from India's perspective, the, the 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 war on cash, if you want to call it that, is is has got two dimensions. Like I said, one is to make sure that there is more tax compliance. We want the government revenues to grow and have the government revenues grow robustly and realistically, given the nature and size of the economy. So there is one that that aspect is about just basically making sure tax evasion does not happen and cash taxes are being paid. Yes. So the the way if you have income and expenses all going down the cash route, you effectively don't have to pay tax because there's no paper trail. So that was the main challenge of making sure tax compliance and the tax GDP ratio went up. The second part of that was this crackdown on crime because criminal enterprises obviously will only deal in cash. Uh, because of anonymity uh, reasons. And so there, if the argument can be made that crypto is actually better uh, on the issue of criminal enterprises and the black economy, that's that's something that the awareness uh, on that has to be built. But those are the two issues that we face today. Uh, and that is the reason for India's crackdown on cash. It may be a little different from the US and it could be very different from, let's say, how UK is doing it in terms of migrating everybody to a digital uh, you know cash platform that and by the way that is what the prime minister of india wants which is to have uh, the component of currency in the economy progressively go down uh, as more and more of india and more and more of indians move towards digital uh, payment solutions uh, digital payment solutions also with crypto and anonymity that is something that we need to build awareness and understanding about just, just because I'm curious, yeah. what what is the tax, the current, like just an over general, um, and my curiosity, what what it is? It, it could, it ranges. It can go up to almost forty two, forty five percent. Okay, well, in the U.S. here, it's it's forty percent in in a higher bracket because we have the state in and you know state and federal taxes. Uh, what about corporate taxes? Yeah, we are all in the same ballpark. It's all forty, forty five percent. And you have some surcharges for the corporate uh, for, for corporate India, but the re- reason I'll tell you the reason why we we absolutely need lower taxes in the long term is that India is a is an economy that is still driven a lot by credit. We haven't over the last seventy years created the equity space 
we haven't created equity in the amounts that our economy requires. And our, our goal is to, for example, be a $5 trillion economy by 2025. And the only way you can create uh, equity is by making sure some of these profits of these corporates are available for reinvesting. So if you tax 40%, you're almost saying that, yeah, okay, some of the shareholders get some money, but there's not very much left to invest uh, and expand the overall equity capital base of the nation. And so gross equity formation is, in my opinion, directly linked to moderate taxation over the long term, which is in turn linked to uh, better tax compliance, which is in turn linked to... That's what I was going to yeah. ask you. Yeah. Do you think lower tax, lower taxes, which sounds great, will lead to more compliance? I think so. I think so. I think uh, there, there is enough empirical evidence in India that shows that the higher the taxes, the more the incentive for evasion. The more complicated the taxes, too. It, 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 here in the U.S., taxes are so complicated. It's just no one even knows what to do most of the time. Yeah, so no, I don't think that's uh, it's, it's very different from the UK or from the from India or from any other country. I think uh, the tax the tax gurus in all countries are kind of like lawyers. They're all exported from some planet out in in space, and they came in here as an alien. <laughs> uh, so no, I think that is true uh, for everybody. I think uh, it becomes a problem for India because if you have a very small percentage of the population paying the taxes for a large uh, part of the nation, uh, that puts an unusually high burden on a very small percentage of people who are all working hard. And I'm not talking about the billionaires and the crony capitalists alone. I'm talking about the actual middle-class guys who are going out there, you know, working a good job, trying to build a future for their families. Uh, In my opinion, it's unfair for them to be paying 35% taxes. I think they should be paying 10-15% taxes in the long term and having money to save, to spend, to invest in, uh, whether it's investing in markets, whether it's invest in commodities, uh, build a stronger uh, equity capital base for their future generations. So I think that's the direction we want to go. That's the direction the Prime Minister has intends to take India. And a big part of that is to ensure everybody who earns pays a fair share of taxes, rather than only those who believe in complying with the law pay the taxes. How involved should a central bank be in, and this is more of a macro question, um, there are some some economies that are very standoffish and let markets, you know, do whatever they're going to do. And there are some other, you know, uh, uh, countries and governments where the the central bank uh, manages everything very, with with a heavy touch. Where do you think India falls into play here? How involved do you think the central bank should be um, in in the economy on a day to day day to day basis? Well, I think the RBI does a, I mean, has does a reasonably you know good job and is a, is a banker that's had a uh, you know good track record compared to some of the other central banks, including the US. Uh, so uh, you know they they are very loath to intervene in currency markets. You don't see the Reserve Bank of India trying to set floors or set ceilings on the currency. And so there's a lot of market uh, determined uh, currency levels there. Uh, Of course, the Reserve Bank of India does uh, manage a very conservative monetary stance. I mean, they they do inflation management, inflation targeting uh, very effectively because that affects 
inflation in India, unlike, let's say, the U.S. or other uh, advanced economies, inflation is like an additional tax on the poor. So if food stuff, uh, you know, uh, sort of grow at 20, 10% per 10, 20% per year, it's basically affecting the household uh, disposable income and survivability of a lot of poor people. So inflation management, they do very, very well. We've had now five years of extremely low inflation uh, with reasonably high nominal growth levels. Uh, so they do that. And I don't think, I don't think the Reserve Bank of India is, uh, you can characterize them as a very interventionist central bank. Um, and as a matter of fact, some of the problems that we are facing in the economy today, for example, in the public sector banking system, with all these bad loans that have accumulated over the last uh, 10 years, are a result of the Reserve Bank of India taking a slightly um, non-interventionist view on issues like bank regulation, which is also in their uh, scope of uh, responsibilities. A lot of people that, that have reached out to me on Twitter think that the government um, of India thinks that um, are, are ignorant of of crypto and thinks that it's a, a Ponzi scheme. Now, I don't agree with that, but obviously there are some that you've talked about earlier that that are that that are not um, being more open minded. What percentage of people um, of of members of parliament? What percentage of of politicians of of bankers? I mean, wh- where do they fall on a spectrum? Do you think? A lot of them agree with you. Do you think that they're more in the middle, on the right side? How how do the cards fall? Well, Charlie, I mean, I, th- this will sound a bit immodest, but and, and I'm not trying to be modest. I think the issues that I take on tend to be issues that are, by my own definition, slightly ahead of the curve. And so, by that, you know, by that, uh, you can safely assume that a lot of the government and the members of parliament. Uh, will come a little late to that party. I mean, they will, uh, they sort of eventually get there, but it's some, it's something that they don't. Will it be too late? You see, I don't know. I don't. You see, I, uh, you know, uh, so far the battles that I've fought, whether it's privacy, whether it's net neutrality, whether it's, you know, all of these things, uh, everybody told me, look, this is never going to work. People are never going to understand. It's too sophisticated. Uh, it's anti-establishment. People don't get it. I, I don't think so. I think any anything that's good for the country, anything that's presented as being good, uh, anything that's presented with uh, the bads of it being mitigated with these kind of solutions, uh, A, B, C, D, like that, um, will find an audience. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sorry to go back to this, but for example, the net neutrality battle that was won effectively in India was a battle that was not easy to win. Uh, there were big you were boys. coming from the your your background uh, is in telco and everything. What exactly, was that yeah. like? No, so that? The, no, exactly right. So and and I I believe then that the consumers of India were getting the short shrift. I think, and at the end of the day, we keep talking investors and you know building capacity and building infrastructure, but the narrative had to move to the 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 interest of the consumer. And that a free and fair internet was core to the interests of the Indian internet consumer. And that that conversation, while I started alone, uh, was quickly joined by almost 500,000, 600,000 people online. We had a joint petition that was submitted to the telecom regulator. That then hit the media. Then that hit, uh, you know, that went on to uh, get the prime minister's attention. And then I wrote a number of letters, raised it in parliament. 
and the, the government's policy became what it is today. So I am not a person that says, no, 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 this is a tough subject. Let's just give up. Nobody seems to understand it. Let's just walk away and say, you know, you know to hell with this. That's not the way I operate. And I, I don't think that's the way any uh, innovation or any any group of people who want the innovation or innovators to succeed in India must approach this. Yes, there is going to be skepticism. Yes, there's going to be resistance. But I mean, you know, if everything was so easy, then you know, everybody would be doing it. So uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not prepared to say that uh, this is tough and India will lose out on this uh, because a few people don't understand it. I think... Uh, I'm, just, like I said, I'm just worried. I'm worried because, you know, the, the, the Reserve Bank of India imposed, um, like, restrictions now that that can severely, severely cripple the Indian crypto crypto community, which is... One of yeah, the largest so think, in the world. Yeah. So Charlie, like I said to the gentleman, Michelle, earlier, I said, I, I, you know, like I said, I, they should get together. They should engage with those in, in public life uh, instead of sniping uh, from the sidelines. I agree. Uh, get into the mainstream and engage, uh, have a conversation, uh, discuss it, uh, be challenged, challenge people right back and then see at the end of the day what happens, what comes out of it. There- but uh, to sit and stand on the sidelines, sort of in the shadows and, you know, uh, saying that, look, look, look we, are, we are way smarter than everybody else and people just don't get us. Uh, and then, you know, then complain and whine later on. Then, you know, that's you only have yourself to blame. Right now, I mean, right now there's a Supreme Court um, ruling that's there's a going on. And I know that the Internet and Mobile Association of India is representing the crypto community um, and the dates keep getting extended. But can we see a favorable outcome with that? Can we see? Uh, I mean, this is so re- this is as of a few weeks ago and it's going on. Um, yeah. Can they reach out to you? Can they can can we see a favorable outcome or at least some? No, no, I, I, I haven't studied the case. I don't know what they're arguing. I have no, I, I brought I know kind of from the media that this is going on. I frankly haven't got uh, uh, a piece of paper in front of me. Nobody sent me anything. Sure. I'm happy to look at it. I'm, I'm happy to even suggest. Uh, an approach that is workable, uh, if if there is any room for that, and uh, you know, I'm happy to engage. I, I I never say no to having a conversation with anybody uh, on any issues related to technology. How can how can people in India? Um, and I'm asking more for for myself um, because I w- I would emulate here in the U.S. the same the same answers. But how how can uh, Indians? Um, get involved in, in policy making and in, in, in industry? Like, is there an official avenue to participate and not just with crypto, but with anything? What's that like in India? But, but Charlie, I, I think, uh, I, I mean, obviously you're not aware, but it's a, it's a pretty vibrant uh, democracy. I mean, on every issue, um, people are engaged. I mean, I, I'm engaged with people, uh, um, you know, all all forms of people. Uh, they discuss, I'm engaged with groups of people who want better roads in the neighborhood. I want groups of people who want illegal massage parlors shut down in their residential neighborhood. And on one spectrum, and I'm uh, one end of the spectrum, and I'm engaged with people who want, uh, uh, you know, better uh, policies for data protection. So there is a lot of engagement and interaction between elected representatives and the people. It is vibrant. Social media just made it even easier. Um, I, I mean, I get hundreds and thousands of emails and DMs and messages and 
on Facebook from people uh, that, uh, you know, and I meet people all the time. And I'm not speaking just for myself. This, this happens across the board for all of our uh, parliamentarians. Uh, so it is, it's a question of depending on what your issue is, connecting to one of the many MPs who's online, who's on Twitter, who's on Facebook, or whose me- uh, mobile number is available online, uh, and reaching out to him and seeking a meeting and engaging well, you, with you, him. you put your money where your mouth is because here we are talking, and, and we, I reached out to you on Twitter, and, and, and here we are. So to my listeners listening, um, he's not just saying this. The, the way we were able to even talk is, is just meeting over Twitter. Um, it seems like, from what I understand, and I, and I see it on Twitter too, the crypto community in India needs to get more active, needs to get more involved, needs to, to, to not just complain about what the issues are, but actually get involved as much as possible. Because in India, you have the ability to do that, where in the U.S. you don't. Yeah, like I said, yeah, I said, you know, I say engage with people who can understand you, who have a point of view, and then have a, have a conversation. Because without a conversation, you know what the result is going to be. You, and with the conversation... There's at least the odds of somebody listening to you, hearing you out, and understanding you. Mr. Chandrasekhar, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time out. I really appreciate it. I think this was a very vibrant and good conversation, and I hope that um, my fellow crypto brothers and sisters in India are listening and and reach out to you, and um, this leads to some really good things. Thanks, Charlie, and thank you for doing what you're doing. Uh, keep doing that. Thank you. That was, hey, that everyone. Was awesome. Thanks for listening. Thank you. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of Crypto Mining. Scott's a broker of ASIC mining gear and helps people buy and sell their miners. He created a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart that you can find at cryptomining.tools. It's the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI. That includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you a more realistic profit projections. So check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.